Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former Major League Manager and Broadcaster Bobby Valentine. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Boone. And today on the program, I'm joined by former manager of the Rangers, Mets, and Red Sox. He's one of the most colorful managers of my generation. He's also been a longtime ESPN broadcaster. Ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Valentine. Bobby, thanks for coming on the program. No, Booty, great being with you, man. I always admire you from afar, and it's good to be with you on this cast. This is awesome. And I'll set the ground rules. I promise, because I, I'm sure you've been only asked this question thousands. Of times. I'm not even going to bring up the mustache in the Mets dugout one time. <laughs> okay. okay if, you don't, if you don't, I won't. But it's, a, it, it's topical. You know that. <laughs> All right. Born in Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, what was Bobby V like as a little kid growing up? Oh, I was the nice guy. You know, I, I was the pleaser. I was the teacher's pad, the coach's favorite, you know, all that stuff. I was uh, on all the sports teams. I was a ballroom dancer, the president of the class. Heck yeah, I did all that stuff, you know, on 100 years ago. No, a half a hundred years ago. <laughs> That's right. I was looking at it. You know what I was thinking when I was doing my prep work for my Bobby V show? I was thinking Bob Boone. I'm reading about you and I'm thinking, wow, yeah. he, 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 you performed at the World County Fair as a ballroom dancer. You're a quadruple threat. You're a football, baseball, track, all state, and you're a ballroom dancer. You're the student council president. That's that's Bob Boone in a nutshell right there. You guys are one of the same. I was going to say your dad and I were along the same track. You know, we uh, did the same era. He he was like Gene Mock's guy. I was Tom Lasorda's guy. Yeah, all that stuff is all all cool and crazy. And, and you know what gets me, and, and the story gets it more interesting as we go. I, I sit here and I look at it. Okay, you're getting you're getting your way through uh, through high school, rip a wand high, and you're getting ready to go off to college. Now, oh yeah, what that senior year in high school? Now this is back. We're dating ourselves a little bit here. It's nineteen, I believe, nineteen sixty eight is the year. What's what? What is what is your life like that senior year? Like I like I mentioned at the top, your all state football, baseball, and track. What are you thinking that senior year before the the uh, amateur draft? Yeah, uh, just as your dad, you know, confused. I'm trying to figure out: Am I going to play football and baseball in college? Am I going to get drafted by the pros? You know, it wasn't. Uh, uh, the draft on TV and uh, read about it every day and listen to ESPN talk about it. The draft was only four years in his, in his existence in 1968. So people are trying to figure out what the heck it was all about. And uh, I, uh, you know, flew across the country and around the country. I was recruited by a lot of colleges. I finally decided I'd go to USC. Ha, ha, ha. Imagine that. <laughs> Uh, and I tried to play football and baseball there. As a matter of fact, there's a guy, Steve Soggy, who is the quarterback that handed off to O.J. Simpson, who was also the catcher on the baseball team, who uh, I got to meet on a recruiting trip. So, uh, yeah, it was all fun, excitement, but um, it, it was also confusing because there was no way of knowing. And I was the first guy for my family to go to college, and, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the ice was thin. Luckily it never broke. You're drafted the fifth overall pick in 1968 by the Dodgers yet you go to USC and, and tell me if I'm, if I'm getting any of these facts wrong, Buckner's your roommate. Is he your roommate at USC? Billy Buckner is you bet. 
How does that happen? Buckner the same year. Let me let me talk to the to the audience there listening to the to the Boone podcast. So Bobby Bobby V's the fifth overall pick in the 68 draft. Not only that, Bill Buckner is a second round pick in 1968. Yet somehow you're both at the University of Southern California as roommates. Now in 2022 that would never happen. So h- how is that that two high draft picks are both in college, but yet you're playing pro baseball. Well, in those days, if we go back once again, there was a thing called the U.S. military draft. And when you were 18 years old, if you weren't married with kids or a full-time student or crippled in some way, you went to Vietnam and you served your term for your, for your country well, when the Dodgers drafted me and when they drafted Bill Buckner in the second round and me in the first round, we had to agree that we'd go to college and be full-time students uh, to make us not eligible for the draft. So we got drafted. He was from Napa, California. I was from Stanford, Connecticut. We both go out to Ogden, Utah. We play rookie ball for Tommy Lasorda. We both had signed letters of intent to go to the University of Southern California. But as things happened, they happened so quickly in those days, or I guess slowly compared to today, we wound up in Ogden, Utah, in Tommy Lasorda's suite, of suite in his hotel room with two beds. So we, we called it a suite. And we called Rod Dato, the baseball coach at USC, and called John McKay, the football coach at USC, to tell them that we were now in in uniform uh, with the L.A. Dodgers and we weren't going to perform our collegiate duties as athletes. Kind of crazy, but that's the way the world was in those days. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Definitely uh, something that you, you wouldn't see uh, in today's times. Ogden Dodgers at your first assignment. And, and as you mentioned, uh, your skipper, the one and only, you know, and, and we, we lost him recently. Tommy Lasorda passed away. Uh, what an unbelievable, I know you were close with Tommy and, and for years, and man, you met him obviously back in 68 to, to present. Uh, what a polarizing figure. What a, and I mean that in a good way. So much good he did for the baseball. He 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 was just a character. I I know, uh, just growing up and and being around dad in the seventies and eighties when when he was playing, and then my career. You know, I I hooked horns with Tommy a lot of times. I I just think he was so great for the game and and one of a kind. I mean, there's there's only one Tommy Lasorda. Uh, tell me about that that early time in your professional career and your first skipper is Tommy Lasorda. Yeah. In rookie ball, uh, Booney, if you could imagine, you know, people think of him as the hall of fame manager. Well, I showed up in Ogden, Utah. He met me at the plane and said he was going to be my manager, my rookie league manager. And, and we went from there to triple a together. And I played a couple of years for him at triple A and in the Dominican Republic and in Venezuela and in Mexico during those winter times. And, um, you know, I got to the big leagues before he did. I got traded from the Dodgers before he got to the big league. So we never were in the, uh, in the big leagues together, but, uh, we retained a special relationship where, you know, he was like my father. I was like his son, uh, I would kill for him and, and he would die for me. So uh, we, 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 we had a wonderful relationship. Uh, you know, it, it, I'm sad and every time I think that he's not around and um, that, that baseball in the world doesn't have that kind of ambassador. But to talk about Tommy just real quick, you know, he, he was the, the guy in the dugout who started hugging his players and learning the names of of the children and the wives and not being that old uh you know general in the in the in the dugout who said it's my way or the highway and you know I got to learn from that I was a manager at 35 years old and you know asked him if that was a good idea and he said you know take the job it's a great idea it doesn't matter about your age and 
it it matters about your person. So, um, you know, he he was really special in my life. No doubt about that. And Tommy, you know, like I said, I played a lot of years against Tommy's Dodgers. And uh, the, the one thing that stands out to me, you know, I had some interactions with him as a kid. But I remember in the 1995 playoffs uh, at the time I was with the Cincinnati Reds and, and we beat the Dodgers to go to the next round. And, you know, as we all do, we always have our the champagne celebration and it's going on in, in Cincinnati. And I remember it was chaos. Everybody's partying, you know, wall to wall people. And Tommy went out of his way, came over from the other, other side, still in full uni. And he went around and he shook the hands of, you know, I don't know if he did everybody, but I remember, you know, a hundred people around my locker and Tommy kind of squeezing in and shook my hands and, and said, Hey, I just want to tell you, you guys deserve this. You were the better team. I thought it was a class move and it's kind of stuck with me uh, throughout my career. It was the, the, the only time that that happened. And I thought, wow, you know, cause, cause you know how it is Bobby on the field. I mean, you love to hate your, your opponent. And uh, we all and sometimes that, sometimes that's a positive thing to hate your opponent. If, if you could if you can find a way to play better because of it. But I do remember that that moment with Tommy. Oh, and he was so hateable. Booty, you remember when he used to yell at you out of the dugout? He yelled at everyone out of the dugout. Yeah. And everyone always would hear him because he made sure that his voice would carry. So, uh, yeah, he, he was a great competitor, though, and a sportsman. Like you say, he. He understood when uh, the other team uh, got the best of him, and um, I'm glad he did that. And he taught me to do it also. Uh, 69, you go to AAA, and, and you also make your big league debut. And, and I saw that your first year, 1969, your cup of coffee, no ABs. You're just pinch running. <laughs> you head back to, to Spokane in 70, you end up being the MVP that year. And then really when you when you started to get some playing time, that was with the Dodgers in 1971. Uh, you played short, second, third, and outfield. Uh, give me a, a, your perspective of what it's like as a young man, especially in those days, coming up to, to uh, uh, an organization like the Dodgers, you know, bleeding that Dodger blue. I think some of your teammates were, were, were Buckner, Garvey, Tommy Pachorek, um, Take me through those early years. We all have them. We all have that initial call up and, and that, that excitement that surrounds it. But what was that like for you coming into that Dodger family at the big league level? Wow. That's crazy, Booney. You know, uh, you mentioned 69 and AAA, uh, after the 69 season checked in at USC because it had to be a full-time student, of course, and season ended September 1st checked in the school September 2nd, the rosters expanded and Billy Buck and I both got to be uh, a Dodger for September of 69, only on the night of uh, home games because we went to school during the daytime and then went down the, uh, you know, Figueroa and onto the highway to get the Dodger stadium at night. I got the pinch run against the New York Mets in 69. If I only knew it was the 69 Mets, that I was pinch running against, you know, I probably would have tried to do something crazy like steal home the one time I got to third base. But, um, you know, as a 20-year-old, I went back to AAA. You're right, I won the MVP in the batting title. And then I did some really smart things. One, I got beaned the last, in the last day of that minor league season, pushed my cheekbone down three and a half inches. Then I got to transfer over to Arizona State to play in the Arizona Instructional League because the Dodgers weren't sure after getting beamed if I could still be a player. Well, once I proved to them that I could not flinch and, and hit the curveball that started out at my head and all that good stuff, I did one of the other smart things of my life, and that is I uh, joined the intramural football team for my fraternity. And during the last day of the football season, I got clipped. Uh, it was two weeks before spring training. I had an entire reconstruction of my knee uh, done by uh, the famous now Dr. Frank Job, who is uh, known not necessarily for knee operations, but for giving Tommy John that elbow operation that coincidentally is called Tommy John surgery today. Yeah. So I went to spring training in a, in a cast and I started the season with a brace on. So 
that's why I was playing all those other positions. I wasn't quite the shortstop that I, I once was and um, never really got all the speed back and the Dodgers traded me in 73. But being a Dodger in those days was, you know, it was, it was L.A. centric. Uh, the Dodgers were in, in their, uh, still in their, you know, uh, building mode, uh, learning how to cultivate a, a community into baseball fans. So, you know, we were out doing the Pepsi clinics and speaking at the little leagues and the high schools, uh, just about every, every night of the winter that we were free and, um, you know, bleeding Dodger blue. Interesting. You, you mentioned Frank Job. Yeah. The, the world renowned and, and, Definitely the, the top guy in baseball circles. We, we actually had Tommy John on it a few weeks ago, and he talked all about that surgery and how uh, there, you wouldn't know who Tommy John was if, if there wasn't a Frank, if there wasn't a, a Dr. Job, uh, because he's the only one that he trusted to do it. And he's the only one he, he thought at the time that could have pulled it off. So a lot of interesting stories with uh, surrounding Job. 73, you said you get traded to the Angels. You get traded with Frank Robinson for Messer Smith. And uh, 73 is, is, you know, my recollection of, of, of reading up on you is that was a, a turning point in your career, 73. You're off to a great start. And then you have, uh, I mean, it seemed like just a terrible injury. Um, Walk me through that. You had a, a compound leg fracture, got your foot caught in the outfield fence. And how much did that change your trajectory as far as, as your career and as, as a big league player? Booty, first of all, thanks for the research. I'm very impressed. Uh, no one should know uh, my career like that. And, and I appreciate you, you allowing me to uh, remember running into a wall, another real dumb thing that I did uh, trying to – catch a home run off the bat of a guy who never hit home runs named Dick Green, who is the second baseman for the uh, athletics at the time. Uh, the, the great uh, Oakland athletic teams, one of the few, few guys who hardly hit any home runs. And this time he happened to hit one that I tried to catch. Um, yeah, I was batting third and leading the league and hitting for most of that year and broke my leg, didn't play the rest of that season. And, and never came back. When I came back the next six years, I was, you know, I went from batting third to um, being that 25th guy on the team and, and, you know, putting my hand up and saying, you know, when can you put me in, coach? Put me in, coach. And at a couple of times my last year in 79, I actually raised my hand when Daryl Johnson, our manager, asked if anybody other than our catchers had ever caught, and I raised my hand. And he put me in the game because um, our, both of our catchers were hurt. I had never had the, the equipment on before in my life. And I was all of a sudden uh, behind the plate in a big league game. And, and that was the last year of my career. I figured, you know, soon after I broke my leg that I had to start thinking about something else. I was selling insurance and selling stocks and, and selling real estate during the winter and getting licenses to try to make a living. And then, um, all of a sudden, I uh, became a coach, which was a kind of a cool thing, a uh, coincidental thing. And um, from there, I became a manager. Yeah, you went 75, you were traded to the Padres. I have one thing before we get into coaching because yeah, that, that's really interesting for me. In 76, when you're with the Padres, one of their affiliates is stationed in Hawaii, the Hawaii Islanders, yeah. AAA. I think they were in the PCL back then. Just give oh, yeah. me a quick, quick snapshot. I, the only time I played, I played in a uh, the Alaska League when when I was in the Alaska League. It, it, I think it was 1988. There was a team called the Hawaii Island Movers that played in Hawaii, and they we'd fly from Alaska to play them, and we had a. I always thought, and, and you know, we're young kids at the time. I'm a I'm a freshman in college. 
And I'm thinking, man, it would be really tough to play baseball every day here in Hawaii when, you know, we're 18, 19 years old. What are we thinking about? Where are we going tonight? You know, where are the girls? We're going to go hang out on the beach. How was that one summer for you in 76? It seems that it would be a little bit bizarre to me playing baseball professionally in Hawaii. Oh, it was bizarre. You know, stayed at the Outrigger Hotel right down in Waikiki, uh, we would take three-week road trips to the mainland and play, you know, Salt Lake City and Spokane and, and Sacramento and, and the teams in the Pacific Coast League. Then go back for three weeks and be three weeks in Hawaii where different teams would come over 10 days at a time and play a 10-game set. Um, it, was, it was radical. I was, you know, trying to hang on. I was playing first base. Uh, for the team. We won a championship, which was cool. And that was the first time I got to manage Booney because our manager, Roy Hartsfield's wife, uh, contracted cancer on the mainland. And in uh, July, he decided he had to go and be with his wife. So he left and he was the first base coach with the Dodgers. When I was with the Dodgers, now he's the AAA manager of the Hawaii Islanders and he said hey you know the Dodger way you can take over the team and he gave me the lineup card as he was leaving the stadium uh, uh, in that year of 1976 so yeah it, it was really cool to be there it was uh, a real radical season where <clears throat> it's too long a story to even tell you but the owner's got busted for tax evasion at the end of the season when we got off of our last road trip after clinching our division. There was a padlock on the gate of the the stadium. We had playoffs that we had to play over in Maui. Not such a bad thing when you look at it because that was the only other stadium that we could use. And um, I guess the rest is history. There's never a, a AAA team there again. Uh, Mets release you in 79. You, you signed briefly with my Mariners, 79, the kingdom. Uh, and then you called a career. Um, and, and I'm assuming I, I know the answer to this question, but with all you went through with, with the injury. And like you said, you went from hitting third to being that 25th guy on the roster. Nowadays it'd be the 26th guy on the roster. We're getting old Bobby, but yeah, I would assume that a guy like you and, and, and has done so much in the game, you kind of had that thought process. You probably started thinking, okay, when this is over, what I'm going to do. So you were probably on, on, you know, from the, from the uh, breath of, yeah, I'm going to go into coaching when I'm done. I want to stay in the game. Was that something you did? Cause like me, I remember, you know, late in my career and, and, you know, we all change as we go. I'm getting back into the game on this side of the ledger now. But I remember talking to to reporters late in my career. And, you know, I'm 36 years old. And they said, uh, what are you going to do, you know, when you're done? And I always said, ah, when I can't play second base anymore, I'm going off into the sunset. I'm never going to be a part of that. You know, a lot of it I'd like to take back and, and kind of got into the game earlier. But guys like you, you'll go right into the game. It's not till 83 that you're in the big leagues again as a coach. Uh, but in between 79 and 83, what'd you do to get ready for that first coaching job and eventually would be your first managing job? Well, Bonnie, once again, uh, you, were, you were the great player and uh, you could almost say that you could uh, leave it behind because you did so much in the game. I felt that there was a lot that I still had to do in the game. But after 79, um, where I played with Tom Pachorek, by the way, once again, he was my first roommate uh, in professional baseball. Buck was my first roommate uh, in college. Um, he, he and I were teammates then in 79, which was one of the great experiences of my life. But I waited around for the phone to ring, you know, and it, it never rang after that season. And I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. And I happened to, you know, run into a guy at a charity event who was opening up a restaurant and wanted a, a name of, on the restaurant and wanted to know if I wanted to be his partner. I became his partner. And, um, you know, I was working the restaurant business for, for a year it turned out to, and I had a business for about 38 years uh, in seven different states. But um, after doing it for a year, 
Lasorda once again popped up and called me and said, hey, I want you to come to uh, a dinner in Youngstown, Ohio. A lot of Italians were going to be honored. Um, and uh, he wants you to meet some people. And I went to this dinner and I sat next to a guy who um, turned out to be the president of the San Diego Padres or the future president of the San Diego Padres because he married Ray Kroc's daughter who had owned the Padres. And uh, after the dinner, I was sitting uh, in my restaurant after lunch one day and the phone rang and it was Ballard Smith who said, hey, you said you wanted to stay in the game. Why don't you come and be a, a minor league roving instructor for our organization? So as you remember, Jack McKeon uh, was uh, their farm director. Jack uh, gave me a phone call and gave me some duties, and I got to be a roving instructor for a couple of years and then got to be a third-base coach for the Mets for a few years. And then in uh, 85, a guy that I sat the bench with when I was with the Mets back in 1977 and 78 was a guy named Tom Greve, who had just become the general manager of the Texas Rangers. And in 1985, he called me up and said, Hey, I'm going to change managers. You want to give it a shot? And uh, next thing I knew I was in Arlington in a big league uniform. Wow. That's pretty awesome. And it's uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you went through Jack McKeon trader, Jack, I played for Jack in uh, 1998. Yeah. He took over. Uh, he managed that Cincinnati Reds ball club. And then you go, you mentioned 83 to 85, Frank Howard, then Davey Johnson are your skippers. You get your shot in 85. You're going to be with the Rangers from 85 till 92. Um, when you got that job, sitting in that, that skipper seat for the first time, um, what, were you, what, what did you draw on for how the type of style, the guy, Bobby Valentine, the skipper was going to be? Was it a lot drawn on Lasorda? Uh, did you... Did you lean on a Frank Howard or a Davey Johnson or a Jack McKeon? Or did you just have enough experience at that time? Like, I know how I want to run this ship. Wow. You know, I played for Lasorda in the minor leagues, like I said, and then a few big leaguers like Dick Williams, Joe Torrey, uh, uh, and Walt Austin in the major leagues. Um, and by the time I was 35, you know, I had all the answers. I knew how to manage. It wasn't a question in my mind. And then uh, three years later, I woke up one day and said, geez, you didn't know anything the last three years. You better get your act together and figure out how to manage, you know. So at 35, um, you know, I, I, I thought I had all the answers, and obviously I didn't. And I learned a lot of things the hard way. And, you know, Booney, one of the things that I remember is there's a guy, Pete O'Brien, who is one of my first basemen. He was the yep. first baseman on the team, actually, when I took over good guy and uh, batted third for me for a couple of years. And in one of my year-end interviews, uh, after managing for a few years, um, he was getting ready to leave the interview. And he stood, as he stood up, he said, hey, Skip, I've got to ask you a question. And he said, I said, sure, what's that? He said, you're not going to be upset if I ask you, are you? And I said, no, what is it? He says, well, why do you think about winning so much? And I kind of stared at him. And I said, why do you ask that? And he says, because I think you think about winning too much. And I went, oh. And after a winter long of contemplation, I realized what he was talking about, you know, that I wasn't given enough uh, consideration to the process, to what goes on during the game in everyone's head and, 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 and what it took to, to win. And so I started to refocus and start thinking about the process a lot more than, than thinking about the wins, even though, you know, as a manager, it's kind of um, consuming that W or that L because it goes with you the rest of your life. Wow, that's interesting. Pete O'Brien, blast from the past. He was a, a veteran player on when I first got called up to the Mariners in, in 1992. Pete, he was our first baseman. He was the first baseman right before Tino Martinez uh, got to the big leagues. But, yeah, that's that's uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, pretty interesting assessment. Uh, and those Rangers teams from from eighty five to ninety two, I was looking at the personnel you had running through there. A lot of great, great players. You ended his last couple of years. You had Nolan, uh, Harold Baines, Pudge, Mitch, a young Mitch Williams. You had a a, a young Ruben Sierra. Uh, I think you had Raffy over there. Um, yeah, we traded Mitch Williams for Raffy. Yeah. You know, we yeah. uh, all these players went went through that organization uh, at different times. It seems Kevin, Kevin Brown was a young guy. Yeah, Bobby Whitbeard, you know, was the number one draft choice that we had, who never found his control for those first four or five years, and then pitched another ten. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I was blessed. There was a lot of great guys. Uh, the the only problem was we were in the same division as the Oakland A's. And uh, the only time the A's weren't good, the Minnesota Twins were. Yeah, that was a rough time to be a Ranger <laughs> in, the, in that division. Um, I mean, you also, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it, not too many people get to get fired by a future president. Is that it, it, when your tenure ended with the Rangers in 92, is that Bush that, that uh, let you go? That was George W., it was George a good decision w. on his part. It was time for, for me to go. He's still a very good friend, and uh, hey, we had great times together. You know, he, he brought a group into Texas to uh, take over for an, an old oil billionaire who uh, kind of lost his fortune and, and in the same time was uh, losing a lot of his, his wherewithal. And George came in and not only took the stadium but uh, built a new one and uh, created a, a real team there. We were trying to build it in the old stadium, which really wasn't uh, a feasible thing to do. Uh, it, it wasn't an enjoyable place to play. Uh, but the new stadium came on in 94, and, and George and his group were, um, were, were spearheading that entire movement, and it was a great thing for baseball. And then we fast forward, and your your story just keeps getting more interesting and more interesting. Uh, 1990, <laughs> 1995, you're heading overseas. You're going, I, I don't even know how to pronounce it, the Chiba Lot Marines. Okay. Yeah. But but yeah. you're headed to Japan to manage into Japan, and I'm just sitting there thinking, how the hell does this happen? Where does this come from? Give me the background. Give me a snapshot of that. How the hell do you just, all of a sudden, you're in Japan <laughs> managing? Well, you know, after Texas, I managed trip, the AAA team for the Mets in Norfolk, Virginia. And that year, 94, um, there was a guy who was working for the Japanese team going around the States trying to figure out who, if anyone, could be the first non-Japanese to manage in the professional leagues in Japan. That was his job that he was uh, tasked by his owner. And he spent the year, he saw me manage, he met me for dinner a few times, we talked through an interpreter, and when the minor league season ended, we went to another dinner, and he said, um, we'd like you to be the first uh, non-Japanese to manage in our leagues, would you do it? And I said, absolutely. And um, that's how it happened. <laughs> I went over, and uh, I, once again, I was going to be the one that knew everything, and I got there, and I learned a lot. And and you're going to head back there later in career, later in your career. And I'll ask you about the the differences, the Japan, the culture, because it is much different, at least from the players and, and buddies of mine that had played over there. But '96, you come back, you're managing the Tides, and you end up taking over for Dallas Green late in the year. And then that's your run from 96 to 2002 as the Mets skipper. Uh, I got to play against you a lot. I remember mostly that uh, I was on that 99 Braves team and we had a pretty heated rivalry. Chipper kept beating you guys up too much. He he put us on his back. It seemed like we'd play the Mets and and, uh, get the better of you guys, especially that year. Chipper ended up winning the the MVP in 99. But I want to talk about your time. 
managing in New York. You'd managed in Texas, you'd managed in Japan now. But New York, as, as we all know, that's a different animal. It's something as a player I craved. Uh, I, I loved, uh, especially late in my career, and, and we'd go into Yankee Stadium. I just look forward to those trips so much just because of the, the way it is there. It, the, the people in New York, they take their sports so serious. I loved being on the other team and beating the Yankees, beating the Mets. Uh, I love walking outside of Grand Central Station and have somebody yell at me from across the street that I suck and they're going to kick our ass tonight. I just loved everything about it. I never got to play there. You know, I never was the home team there. But uh, going to the Big Apple, uh, how did that differ from your previous managing experience? Well, Booney, first off, you would have been great in New York. Uh, your style, your flair would have uh, fit in with the A's and the Nays. There's no doubt about that. Um, but, you know, I, I was older now. I had learned a lot. I had taken over a terrible group of guys. For, and I don't know, group of guys, a, a terrible team that had a bad reputation. Um, you know, the only time they got a headline is when something went wrong and the were ready to make their run and <clears throat> George Steinbrenner was at the helm across the town and our owners, you know, wanted to build something that was uh, sustainable and credible and could get a back page for something other than the bad news. And I was uh, hired to work 12 months a year. I was hired to uh, help with the player development and scouting and, and uh, team out on the field. And it was a glorious experience. You know, we went from a team, again, that was being laughed at to a team, um, that 99 team, which was one of my favorite teams. And I remember every one of those battles against your guys down at Atlanta. And you were all so damn good. It was, it, it was hard to take, uh, you, know, especially, you know, especially because your pitchers could hit, your pitchers could field. Your your team can hit home runs. Wow, what an envious thing! And and Chipper, of course, uh, and you and Andrew Jones. Oh my goodness! And Brian Jordan. Anyway, uh, sharpening my teeth in New York was fun uh, because we got there. We got to that sixth game in '99 against you guys when Kenny Rogers uh, walked. Uh, Andrew Do- Jones with the bases loaded in the extra innings. And then we got to the World Series against the Yankees in 2000. And I can tell you there's, there's probably nothing like that experience, the, the intensity of it, the volume of it. You know, it's, it's, it's the same as it is everywhere else. There's just so much more of it uh, every single minute of the day. That 2000, that had to be unbelievable. An all-New York World Series. I mean, as we sit in, in 2022 right now, uh, if it ended today, that's who would beat the World Series. That's in, in the Yankees. That had to be unbelievable. Because being a championship-caliber team, whether you're a Met or a Yankee, that city's turned upside down anyway, let alone both teams in it. I mean, that had to be one of the coolest uh, experiences of, of if not your entire career, definitely your managing career. Oh, without a doubt. Life, uh, life's career. Um, as you well know, just for, for your listeners, you know, interleague play came into uh, Vogue in, in 1997. Well, we were lucky enough as the Mets to play against the Yankees twice as much as we played against any other American league team because they were our rivals. So you can imagine the fever pitch of fandom for both sides while uh, we were playing in 97, 98, 99. By 99, I remember Joe Torrey coming over and say, we've got to petition the league to have it only be one series and maybe even let's get rid of this interleague playing your rival it, it it was it was really intense every game, and then the fourth year of interleague play, we got to play each other during the season, and then yes, again playing in the subway series at the end of the season. So uh, it, it, when I say there was more of everything that year of two thousand, it was um, it was so much more. It was uh, exhausting. 
That was the big Clemens Piazza fiasco. I still, as a player, I, I still watch that clip and I think, what the hell is he possibly thinking in that? We had uh-huh. Mike. It was great. I had I had uh, Michael on uh, a few months back and, and he touched on it. And he, you know, he was real professional about it. But you could tell when I asked him the question what he was really thinking. But as a player, think of us as players. We're sitting there, you know, back then we're watching it on Center. And the look of my teammates' face when we see Clemens throw the bat at Piazza, we're thinking, this really just happened? Is you know?" And then try to play it off like, I thought it was the ball. <laughs> it was great. But to hear Mike, he puts it in perspective a little bit. Uh, jumping to 2001, and I've asked this of all the guys. We've had a ton of guys on the, on the program from, from the New York uh, teams. Uh, and I always ask this question, 2001. 9-11, where were you? Yeah, Booney, you know, our team was in Pittsburgh, um, you know, in the hotel room early in the morning, turned on the TV, saw the planes, and um, I thought instantly the world was ready to change, and, and in fact it did. We drove home the next morning. We saw the entire Manhattan skyline under a black cloud of smoke. Uh, we went on to do a week's work worth of of tra- charity work, trying to heal the wound any way we could. And then Major League Baseball had the wisdom, uh, with the guidance of George W. Bush, our commander in chief at the time, to um, reengage baseball, to start it back up, to take a week off, but to play baseball again and finish out the season and. And uh, 10 days after 9-11, on September 21st, 2001, uh, your Atlanta Braves, without you on the team, came up to New York and um, played the first game in New York after 9-11. That's the game Mike hit the dramatic home run, and we won. And many of Braves said it was the, the only game they ever thought it was okay for the Mets to beat the Braves in because – it was a, such a monumental day in everyone's life. Um, but, yeah, that, that's one of those experiences also that um, was, was life-changing and can never be forgotten. I think you're right, too, and everybody around baseball. And, and once again, that was back in the time where, you know, we were watching baseball tonight. That's what players watch. We didn't have these smartphones that, that were getting all these feeds instantaneously. We were all watching, and we were all watching that game. And you talk about it. Shea, I think, was a command post, uh, the Shea Stadium, the actual parking lot for, for right after that 9-11 uh, date hit. And uh, Piazza hits that home run. You got the NYPD hats on. And I think every player, especially playing in that in that era, uh, remembers that night. And still, you know, and, and I'm sure you were so close to it. It hits you a little harder than it would hit me, who wasn't any. You know, I'm on the Mariner team. But by the way, I'm on the Mariners. Hey, we're getting ready to choke and not win the World Series, <laughs> winning a million games. And then, and then we didn't make it. But I still get choked up. Just watching that clip when Piazza hits the home run, I thought, wow, that's that's monumental right there. That's a historic home run because it kind of said, hey, we're going to be all right. You know, it kind of gave us uh, I don't I, I don't know what the word is. I'm, I'm struggling to find the saying, but it but it was something and it was a huge lift that kind of tell New York we're going to be OK. It was all encapsulated in that moment. Without a doubt, Booney. Uh, and, and yeah, 116 games. You guys were spectacular that season in, in uh, Seattle. Um, but, you know, you, I guess it gave everyone hope again. You know, there was 10 days of fear. There was 10 days of uncertainty. And, uh, you know, when, when you get knocked down, uh, what the great ones do is get up. And what our country did was uh, we were down, but we got up. And I think that home run in that game helped us get off the mat. 2005, 2004, you're headed back to Japan. And, and I, I know we've only got a little time here, but I just wanted to touch on somebody that's been there, lived there, been in that culture for years at a time. Explain to the audience the differences in, in Japanese professional baseball 
and the big leagues. I, I know there's, you know, I've heard from teammates that have gone over there for a year at the end of their career. There's a different set of circum, you know, there's a different kind of set of rules. The Japanese players do it one way. It's, it's their culture. Uh, American players come over there. You know, we come up in a completely different system where we, we do it differently. Um, how did you see the, the game of – how does Japanese baseball, first of all, stack up to Major League Baseball? And how different is it? How much did you enjoy it? Obviously, you enjoyed it. You stayed there for – you know, your second tenure over there was 04 to 09. Uh, I enjoyed it immensely. Um, you know, it's a very organized uh, culture, so the game is a lot more organized. Uh, you know, the, the uh, one thing when I was hired the first time – the one bit of advice that the general manager gave me was that um, he said, listen, in your first press conference, I know all American managers say the same thing, but please don't say that the only thing you're going to ask of your players is for them to show up on time and to hustle. <laughs> and I looked at him and said, why not? He said, because everyone shows up on time and everyone hustles. So that wouldn't be anything special that you would bring be bringing to the table, and I think that encapsulates it. The you know uh, as much as anything that you know we we hear work from the time the game starts until the time the game ends. Uh, I think in Japan the the players take it more as a job. Uh, they work from the time. They punch the clock and the time they get to the park, which is early, until the time they punch out, which is late. And, uh, you know, there's more practice. There's more discipline. Uh, there, there's uh, more attention to detail. You know, the, the three-two count there is that uh, moment of reckoning, you know, when something has to happen next. And, and they like building the the at bat to a three two count and then have the pitcher have his best pitch and have the hitter be ready for the best pitch um, you know the fans are different in that they participate rather than just uh, appreciate you know we give a standing ovation after a guy uh, does something uh, really well they do a standing ovation when the team takes the field and then every time a player comes to bat there's a song in that player's name that sang the entire at bat, whether it's one pitch or 11 pitches. So yeah, it, it's a, it's a different culture, a different fanfare, but the game itself, uh, the batter against the, the pitcher, the, uh, fielders doing what they have to do. The base running is, is all the same game with a little less risk being taken on that side of the Pacific than on this side. Yeah, I, I got to play with Ichiro and Kazuhiro Sasaki were teammates of mine in, in that 2001. See, how, how much, how fluent are you in Japan, Japanese? I only know the bad words, Bobby. So, <laughs> it, you know, Ka, Kazuhiro would say, I'd say, Kazi, give me, give me some Japanese. And he'd teach me and he'd teach everybody in the bullpen and Jeff Nelson and Arthur Rhodes be yelling at fans in Japanese. It was funny. Did you, did you get that far where are you fluent in, in Japanese? Uh, Fluent meaning read and write and speak. No, but I can speak it. I can speak over the phone. Uh, I have a limited vocabulary, a few hundred words, but, uh, you know, most everything I need to say can be said and, uh, and actually even understood. Yeah, I, I embraced the society. I ate the food. Um, you know, I, I, I loved the people. I uh, in, enjoyed the culture. Very cool. 2005, you won the championship there. Um uh, and then you headed back here after the 2009, you, you go to ESPN, you do some work uh, with them. Once again, you're back in the, in the skipper seat with the Red Sox in 2012. It lasts one year. And this was really interesting to me. 2013. Now, this is Bobby V. Of course, he's going to have something else. You, you're the AD for the Sacred Heart University. Yeah, I mean, you're doing it all. Restaurants, bars, Japan. I, I mean, what haven't you done? I've been really lucky, Booney. That's all I can say. Yeah. You know, I, I, even in Boston, I thought that was a, a great year to be in Boston. It was the 100th year anniversary of Fenway Park. You know, so all the guys 
that I played against and I I watched growing up, uh, etc., uh, all came back on different weekends, so I got to see them. It was a miserable season on the field, but a, a, a really good uh, season in my memory. When I came back, the phone rang. I picked it up, and the president of the university said that he wanted to talk to me. I thought he wanted me to write a check. Instead, he wanted me to take over an athletic department, and uh, I did it for eight years with a Division One school. It was really fun. And uh, then after that, uh, I left there to run for mayor of my hometown. I lost by 600 votes. I bought a Tesla, drove across the country, and now I'm doing pre- and post-game work for the L.A. Angels, where my best friend's son, uh, Perry Manassian, is the general manager. So it's all cool. Life has been good. (laughs) That is awesome. What advice would you give to a 19-year-old Bobby Valentine? Well, to to use a little caution in trust trusting your gut, to always understand that you you have the right idea, uh, and that great ideas flourish uh, at the right time. So make sure that uh, you 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 try to mix your gut with the timing of of the event and um, learn from all those mistakes and and. Uh, understand that they're part of your backpack as well as the good experiences and um, uh, make sure that backpack gets as full as possible during your life. Bobby V, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you coming. This was really cool getting to talk to you. Like I said, I was looking forward to this one because your life is so interesting and and you've done so many done and and seen so many different things in in the game of baseball you're you're a great as well as tommy lasorda was you've been a great ambassador for the game i truly appreciate you coming on the show this was a lot of fun like we do each and every boon podcast at the end of the podcast we bring back the voice of the podcast dan levy dano you there oh i'm here mr valentine thank you so much for coming on the podcast sir (laughs) What an honor to be with with uh, Booney and your family's been great for baseball as good as any any family in the world. I appreciate what you're doing and good luck good luck in your next uh, little venture, whatever it might be. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.